Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Welcome to the Philippe Matthews Show at thepmshow.tv. Named the Oprah of the Internet by Mark Victor Hansen, Philippe Matthews doesn't ask questions that are different. He simply asks questions that make a difference. The Philippe Matthews Show features entertainers, bestsellers, authors, thought leaders, change agents, and world-class experts in the field of personal, spiritual, and professional development. An internet marketing entrepreneur, Philippe is the creator of the How Movement, dedicated to teaching people how to move from the mindset of hope to the process of how. If you are ready to take your life to the next level, move from the mindset of why to the mindset of why not. Tune in right now to this latest edition of the Philippe Matthews Show and watch your life grow. All right, let's get rock and rolling here, Rudy. Um, first of all, I'd like to congratulate you uh, on uh, this memoir, autobiography. It's absolutely incredible what a life you uh, have had and still are having. Yeah, trying to, at least. Uh, it took you 10 years to do this book. Why would you decide to do a book after 10 years? Well, the first couple of years I was very busy trying to survive financially with uh, Hoffman Aviation. After that, I was kind of busy with uh, Astro Aviation. I was kind of busy to try to make a living. And I did put all my memoirs already on tape. Um, I did not write, per se, the book myself. I put it on tape, and then I used a ghostwriter, Miriam Jacobs, to put it on paper with me together. Because, you know, I never wrote a love letter, so how the hell can I write a book, you know? I'm a businessman. <laughs> yeah, so, so, but it was kind of uh, emotional for me. Uh, I still have uh, emotions around the book, but if I uh, put a tape on, then, you know, you don't live it as well as you read it. So when Miriam came back with the chapters, it took me a long time to read it, and then, um, I didn't think about it publishing anymore, but I met an, uh, an agent in Holland, uh, where I'm born, and he uh, was interested to show it to a publisher, and they were interested, so they put it on the market in Holland in 2008. That became a success, and then I thought, you know what, I'm so mad at, at a person here in the United States that he puts my name on the Internet so bad that I try to put things straight also put things straight as, you know, people think that the terrorists only had to steer left and right. So I kind of did this, you know, I said, okay, then I'll put it in English. So then we translated it back from Dutch to English, and that's why it took so long. Okay, okay. Well, uh, it is a fascinating read. It's a fascinating life. I want to start out by, uh, you know, starting with your with the beginning of the book, where you say in the book you remember nothing for uh, of your first six years, but by the time... Your parents had moved to Amsterdam in 62. You said that your childhood was gone. Um, reflect on that for us. What do, you, what do you mean by that? 
Well, my childhood was, was gone in the way that my father was kind of a dictator, and there was no time for me to play. Um, he always put me to work, and you can say that's maybe good, but I was not playing with my kids of my own age. Uh, when I was uh, from, that I remember, six, seven years old till 12, till I moved from Amsterdam to a little other place, I started to be a little bit free. Uh, my father always used to say, playing is for stupid. You uh, you need to make money. You need to survive. You're a man. You need to be the head of the family. So I had a tough uh, education from him. He was 40 years older than I was. He uh, was born in the First World War. So maybe the guy had such a tough life that he thought maybe it would happen with this generation too. So that's what I mean with, that's what I mean with you know, my youth passed away. Because I had no friends when I was a little boy because I was never outside. I was never playing soccer. I lived in a square in, in the center of Amsterdam, and after school, if I didn't report to my father to work, then there was hell, so I reported to work. Wow. Now, you, you also lived on a houseboat. Yeah, yeah. There's pictures in the book from the houseboat. I took that a couple of years ago when I was in Amsterdam. My father was building boats, houseboats. And that's why I had to help him. I had to take the nails out of the old wood because he didn't buy the wood to build the, the, the boats. No, he, he collected the wood from everywhere, from houses that were broken off. And I had to take the nails out. So, you know, there was something I guess he didn't want to do, and he wanted to teach me something. Now, you said that you remember nights when you woke up with your, your stomach empty, you know, or from rumbling, you know, your stomach was empty and you didn't have running water, electricity, and... You had a your, your faucet was the public hand pump across the street. I mean, these were really yep. hard times. Yes, they were. I mean, even I and in the winter, you know, we lived on the water, as you say, in the houseboat. My bedroom was the size of a, a, a bathtub, that small, really that small. But I had a little window, and we had the crystal flowers on the windows every time because I had no heater. So yeah, it was not easy. It was not easy, but. I have to admit, as a little kid, you don't know better. Exactly, exactly. You, you also say of your mother, uh, uh, was it, how do you pronounce her name? Zwanche, uh, how do you pronounce her name? Swainte, Swainte. Swainte. You said she drank and she cried a lot and didn't really know how to run the family or a house. Uh, and that, you know, you say your parents, you know, for a child, should protect you from the scary world. But they really weren't able to do that. Yeah, well, you know, Amsterdam back then was really uh, a ghetto. Um, she was 20 years younger than my father. As I said before, my father was a real dictator. Um, he said that he was Jesus, so I don't have to tell you any more than it was. He was, you know, he had probably a good heart, but in my opinion, he was way too hard for the kids, for me, my sister, and my brother, and also for his wife. I've seen many times that he beat up my mom. And, you know, it doesn't show respect to me. Uh, now I'm an adult, already a couple of days, by the way. But uh, <laughs> when I think back about that time that I saw my mom just sitting in a corner and he hit her, that's wrong. That's just oh, flat out wrong. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, when you, by, I think by the time you hit 15, you were kind of on your, you were working, uh, uh, doing horseback riding, working uh, with uh, with a, 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 a mentor, a person who became a mentor to you in a sense. Uh, and you started making a little money on 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 the, on the uh, uh, horse uh, ranch. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. Well, yeah, you know, I, I went, when we moved from Amsterdam to uh, a place called Benicum, 
It was a really high society place, a lot of money there, and people were horseback riding, and I never did it in my life, but I got attracted with that, and I, I could not pay for the horseback riding, so I started working in the stables, cleaning up the shit from the horses, and nothing wrong with that. They took me in, and by taking in, I mean they accepted me and their client, to call it that way, because it was kind of a client back then, money people. And they teach me horseback riding, and I learned, you know, uh, I love it better than the schools, uh, obvious. As a young kid, you probably do that. So I skipped uh, school for a year. Uh, my father kicked me out of the house. Uh, I stayed in the horseback riding business. I slept between the horses. Then after about, I think, eight months or a year, I started to realize that maybe I was a little smarter just to clean uh, horse shit. So I went back to <laughs> I went back to my father. I asked him, "Hey, Dad, I made a wrong decision. I think I should get my diploma, my high school, and a further education. Can I go back?" And he says, "Yeah, you can go back, but your room is given to your sister, so you sleep in the hallway and you pay for your own books, you pay for your own school." I mean, back then, as 15-year-old kids, you really get the responsibility pushed in your nose. And, and I mean, is it good or is it bad? I mean, if you look at the outcome, I became a fighter. I mean, a real fighter. I, I really believe if I didn't have this character, I would not have been as strong towards certain government agencies. I really believe that. So maybe I should be thankful. Everything, you know, everything comes to teach us. Everything comes to teach us. You, you know, in '74, you joined the military, and, and uh, what was yeah. that experience like for you when you uh, uh, started becoming a man? Yeah, um, my father always told me you got to be a police officer. He was one in World War II, and uh, he thought it was the best for me. I didn't like it, you know. I had tickets already before I was 18. I didn't like those people to just give tickets away, so I chose for the army. At least I did something for him that I thought he was proud. Mm. Um, I went in the, the I went in the KMS. That means uh, Royal Military School. Uh, that was really a privilege to get there. Um, I was there for a year. I became sergeant. Then I became sergeant uh, in the electronics. I started not to like it, and the reason why I didn't like it is not because it was the army, but it was because of the fact you start at 7:30 in the morning and you're done at 3:30. Shoot. I was a young man. I wanted to work hard. I didn't want to be sitting on my ass at home. So at 3.30, I went, I went out, uh, you know, and I started to be a cab driver in the night because I wanted to work more. Mm-hmm. Then I saw that, you know, the money I made, it was next to nothing back then. And I heard in the cab business people, and, you know, I'm, I'm like a monkey. If you teach me to climb, I climb. That's, mm-hmm. that's, that's, the, that's my character. So... You know, I met some people in the taxi, and they gave me business ideas, and I thought, that's what I'm going to do. And that's why I resigned the military, because of the money. I liked the military, but it was too lazy for me. And then into business, I loved it a lot more. And then the book writes about Debo, that is Decker's Drills. I started to buy drills in Germany and sold them to the grocery, to the um, handyman stores in Holland. Mm. Now, you, you also started... Um, uh playing around in real estate a little bit and developing houses. Is that right? Did that come after the Army? Or yeah. That was after the Army, and that was after the drill business. After okay. the drill business, I went to Spain uh, because my father died, and I thought, okay, I'll go to Spain. There was some money left, and when I was there, there was nothing anymore. My mom used it. But after Spain, I went back to Holland, and that's where I started in real estate. Okay. All right. 
Yeah, I remember in the book you said that, you know, it pleases you to, to think that there are still thousands of people living in the houses that you developed and built. That's a, that's incredible. Yeah, still, still, still. Yeah, I have a lot of friends that bought from me, and uh, I, I built a fantastic product. And you know what happened back then was that there was land available in the place where I lived, but the people just didn't have the money or the capability to design a house. And anyway, it was cheaper back then to build and to buy the land, and that's what I started to do. And I didn't make a, much, a lot of money per house, but, you know, we made 5%, so 200,000 guilder, $100,000, $5,000. But if you do plenty of them, you still make good money. Mm-hmm. So I really started to make good money when I was 24 years old, really good money. Uh, take us back to, um, I think it was in, in, the, in, the, in the 80s, uh, moving forward, you, you, you met Tom Furstenberg, uh, who was one of the hosts <laughs> of Samsonite. Uh, yeah, you can yeah. tell. You can tell I read your book, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and, and he really influenced your life. How, tell us about the story with Tom Furstenberg and 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 uh, you know how that how that came to be. I met Tom Furstenberg uh, when I built a house for his ex-wife in in the place where I lived. Mm-hmm. And Tom came to me after I sold him the house and built a house for his ex-wife that he apparently paid for, but I didn't know that. But after the fact, he came to me and says, Rudy, I've been looking with hawk's eyes, eagle eyes, how you were doing, but you did such a great job. I want to shake hands with you. It's nice to meet you. And then we talked, and then he said he had a plane, uh, a type of Seneca, a two-engine six-seater, and he was going frequently to England. And uh, if I wanted to enjoy one of the flights up to England, I said, sure. So I was here, I think, about 25 in that range, 26. And then I went with him in his plane to Guernsey, an island of England. And I enjoyed that so much, being free in the air. And I was hooked. I was hooked for aviation. And then after that, I went to uh, a flight school in um, close to me, 30 miles away, and I took there my licenses, uh, I got my licenses there. I was I was completely hooked. And then I stayed friends with uh, with Tom, actually, until I left the U.S., and it's funny that you mention him because, you know, I didn't think about him anymore, but a couple of months ago, two months ago, I went on Facebook, and guess who I met there? And now he's coming to the States to meet me again, so that's fantastic that I meet him again, you know? Oh, how incredible is that? What a what a 360 degree story that is. That's awesome. Yeah, that's uh, he's 70 something now, but um, I, I like the guy very much. And uh, yeah, he's coming over here. And uh, in, in the press releases, I meant his name. You know, uh, or, or my my agent mentions his name. He is a fantastic person, and he's still so diversified. It's interesting to talk to him and to have him here. So I will be happy when he's here. Oh yeah, that's going to be an awesome uh, reunion, awesome conversation. Now, as a result yep. of um, you, I mean, hey, the reason that we're talking on the phone really can can kind of be attributed to to uh, uh, Tom Furstenberg being in your life, and you know that first flight, and you got hooked. Uh, you became an aviator. So what was it? I think in the book you said at age 35 you waffled a bit on your decision to stay in America versus the Netherlands. Uh, but you kind of got a little ticked off after a point because you were uh, basically feeling the Netherlands was punishing you in taxes for being rich and being successful. Well, that's the problem back then. They are more lenient now, but 
back then uh, I was really successful and the tax and everything was 92%. And uh, it's just, you know, not funny if you work your ass off that much and the government takes 92%. So um, that's why I said, okay, that's one of the reasons I left Holland. Uh, so the weather had to do with it too because it's always raining there. Uh, the mentality here in the States had to do too because uh, I love the people here, you know, they... Uh, it's let it be, let it be, you know, let everybody be their own uh, people. In Europe, where everything is smaller, uh, people look uh, behind the curtain what somebody else is doing. Here it's more open. So I, I loved it here. So that had to do with it too. Um, yeah, I was about 35 when I came here, and, and yeah, that was one of the decisions. You're right. Uh, so you came here, you built this uh, phenomenal uh, uh, company. Uh, I think at one point it was uh, estimated over $12 million, worth $12 million, which was phenomenal. Uh, you have yeah, that was, all the com that was all the companies combined, though. Okay, okay. Uh, you had, what, 10 mechanics, 20 flight instructors. Uh, you know, you, so you opened up the cafe cockpit, and uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. then all of a sudden, uh, you know, uh, I think you said in chapter, uh, the chapter that's uh, called Dead Man Walking, uh, July 1st, uh, you know, two guys uh, walked into the uh, – uh, into your uh, shop. Yeah, I remember that was five seconds ago. Wow. Well, let's go yeah, there. Talk about it. So well, I was standing. Here. Go ahead. No. So so they walk into they walk into uh, uh, your business. They want uh, to take uh, flight lessons. I think you said they came from Jones Aviation and weren't satisfied there. Correct. Uh, and yeah, that was. But, so they they walked in. They weren't satisfied. They wanted to have you, uh, your company, train them. What 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 happened? What transpired there? Well, what happened is I was standing in the lobby on this day in the morning drinking drinking a cup of coffee, and those two persons, men, walked into uh, the front uh, where the lobby is, and I was there anyway. You know, it's not my job normally to greet people, but I was standing there, and I said, "Hey, good morning. Can I help you?" And then Atta uh, spoke and said, well, we're investigating uh, to find another flight school because we're not happy where we are and we need housing. So uh, for us, it's critical that we find a flight school that has housing. I said, well, housing is indeed very difficult, but we will probably have housing. Um, they check around. So they checked around the facility. I put them on the golf cart and showed them my maintenance. I showed them everything. Uh, it was quite a bit what I had back then. And um, after I showed them around, took an hour, I had them in the cockpit cafe, the restaurant that I started there. And then they said after an hour, well, we're going to another flight school in Ponte Gorda, and I know the flight school, and we'll let you know if we're interested. And three days later, they came back, and they said that they made up their minds. They wanted to uh, learn to fly in my facility. So uh, that said, I needed to get housing. And my bookkeeper, Charles Voss, who worked for me, had uh, one or two rooms that he rented out uh, sometimes to students. So I asked him, Charles, are you willing to rent it out? Uh, if you uh, want to, talk to those people. And he did talk to them, and he rented out the room, and that's how they started. Well, you know, for the people listening uh, who don't know, it's very, very expensive uh, to uh, uh, take uh, flight classes. And um, what is it, $40,000? It's a six-month or half-a-year dedication 
so you know there, there there's a huge dedication uh, and and amount of money that 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 comes with that. Uh, yet they, based upon uh, what you described in the book, they they had you know extremely bad behavior and a, a lack of focus. Talk to us about that. Well, I did not hear about that until my chief pilot, Daniel, uh, came to me and said, Rudy, I got two students that are not behaving. They are not listening to the instructions from the instructors. Can I expel them from the flight school if uh, that is necessary? I said, who are they? That's Mohammed Atta and Marwan al I said, sure. But, you know, I told them also, I said, don't do that just right away. Think about the business that they bring to us. So see if you can straighten them out, but tell them if you can't straighten them out, you kick them out. And that's what happens. And um, they were not behaving uh, in the way of instruction. They were normal in the office. I mean, they were not polite to the female workers, but there was nothing that we saw earlier. Only in the plane they were just, you know, fooling around. So Daniel Purcell had a meeting with them, and he told them flat out, he said, listen, we're a professional flight school here. It's not good for our reputation that we have students here that are screwing around and, and not obeying the instructors. So you can go this way, that is uh, what you're doing, then we'll kick you out, or you can go the right way, and that is listening to uh, what they instruct you, and then you'll get your licenses. So uh, it's up to you. And they choose to uh, to listen to the instructor. They became uh, mediocre mediocre students, uh, nothing above average. They were average, uh, and they passed their tests. They did their single engine, multi engine, instrument uh, uh, reading, and multi and, and the twin engine, as I said. So they did the full course what we had. Uh, it's also uh, noted to say that the training that they received from you. Uh, had nothing to do with jet training because that's a completely different type of training yeah. of which you were not certified to train or to teach, and you and so you did not. They had to go somewhere else for that. That is correct. Well, what I understand after the fact, uh, after 9-11, when I uh, found out that I was involved, I talked to one of the people from the FBI, and they explained me exactly what happened. Is They went to Pompano Beach, and they had six-hour simulator training in a 727. Now, in six-hour simulator training, you don't learn a lot. They also bought Microsoft Flight Simulator and uh, to know where all the switches were in the cockpit, but you still don't know a lot about that. But, you know, it's so funny. The people in, you know, the book Guilty by Association is for a reason because, in my mind, I thought people, you know, I was guilty by association. That's so funny. If you read the Internet and you look at my name, you see a lot of bad stuff, bad press. Not from the real press, but from uh, people that are just, you know, screaming around that whatever they say, you, you know you know what I'm saying. I can't find the word right now, but anyway. But you, you don't find stories there that say that the grocery store who sold them groceries is responsible. <laughs> you understand what I'm saying? Absolutely. They, they, they think flight schools were responsible. Well, first of all, Rudy, I did a tremendous amount of research on you, as I do with all of the people that I interview. And if at all I ever thought or suspected that you were guilty or had implication, I wouldn't interview you. So I know yeah. you're and I know uh, that you are guilty by association. There are a few people out there that are just as fanatical as uh, the terrorists. 
uh, and wanting to point blame and uh, wanted to hate everybody and to have a reason to, and you just happen to show up that day. Um, so let, let's talk a little bit about, okay, they, they, they come in, they take their course, they pay their bill, I think it was around January one. What did the rest of the year look like for you before September uh, 01. What, 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 you know, after they left, was it just business as usual? No, it became busier and busier. My, uh, I bought the company in 98 uh, from Stan Hoffman. Uh, Stan was an older man in absentee management in the company. Uh, he did only $330,000 the year that I bought it in 1998, and I went to... Uh, $1.2 million, and I'm only talking about flight instruction. So the year that 9-11 started, I was already at $1.2 million flight instruction versus two years before that, it was three and a thirty. So almost four times as much. That means I had to go out to Europe, put advertisement in Germany and England, and I did, and in Holland, and, and I was becoming really successful. And 9-11 put a big pencil underneath that and stopped everything for me like a wall, like a wall. I mean, I could never in my wildest nightmares think that this could happen. I was really on my way. You know, I started an airline. I don't know if you know about that, but it took yeah. five years for me to, yeah, uh, it's called Florida Air, mm-hmm. Flare. It took me five years to get it out the ground. Um, I had only there 60 pilots working for me, uh, about seven mechanics. And you know I had separate hangers for that, so it was it was really going well. Um, I flew already, and then after 9/11, the Department of Transportation called my attorney John Gillick in New York and said we would like Rudy to resign. We did not give you financial fitness yet, and I'll explain to you in a moment what that means. But if Rudy resigns, we'll pretend that everything will continue. And my attorney asked him, can you put that on paper? Well, of course, we never had it on paper. You know, it's like an examiner in a car. If he doesn't want to give you a license, he doesn't give you a license. So financial fitness means that you send your paperwork in to the Department of Transportation. They look at your financials. If you're strong enough, three months to survive when people pay the tickets, that you can supply them with the uh, travel that they bought, and then you have to leave the money in escrow accounts for three months. It took them a year to take that decision, and in this year, 9-11 happened. So that's uh, the, I was kicked out, basically, so I was not happy with that. Um, on, on September 11th, you happened to be on the phone uh, with the lady from the FAA. and uh, You really did your homework, huh? <laughs> I really did, Rudy. Uh, it's who I am. Uh, but you, you have a fascinating story. She yelled, oh, my God, a plane crashed in the World Trade Center, and you, you really didn't believe her. It was actually the Department of Transportation in Washington that I had on the line, but that is still FAA, you know. Uh, it was about my airline that I called. It was a couple of minutes after 9 o'clock. I was talking to her, and then she yelled uh, exactly what you said. Oh, my God, the flying in the trade. I said, come on, don't, don't start a joke with me now. And it took her two times, and she became mad. And then I said, really? I mean, who the heck could, you know, expect something like that happening? So we turned on the TV and yeah, there it was. The building was hit. It was on fire in the top. You know, you know how it looked back then. Yeah. And while we're watching, and all my my pilot, it was early in the morning, nine nine minutes after nine or something. 
and all my students and, and, and instructors were still there. And now I'm in Naples. I had a flight school also in Naples called Ambassador Airways. And we're having a small screen. I think it was six by six inch because it was not normal for us to have a TV on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we were like, what the heck is this? This can never be done by a pilot. A pilot would never do this. He would rather die than, than flying a plane in the building. And then the second plane hit. I mean, I was like yourself, like all America. We were crying. I mean, I'm, 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 I'm reliving this now again. I got goosebumps. My hair is standing straight everywhere again. We were crying. We were like, unbelievable this could happen. And and then you know the next day I find out I was involved. That was a that was a shock. Like, whew. yeah. So <laughs> unbelievable. So nine eleven was was obviously a shock to uh, the world, but nine twelve was a shock to you. Uh, was yeah, nine twelve was yeah. Your office manager Susan DeSantis uh, called you up about six fifteen. Tell me the story. Yeah. I'm always an early bird because I want to be at 8 o'clock in Venice, and I live an hour and a half away, so I was awake already. She called me, and that was strange. I never, ever, ever had a phone call that early from my office. First of all, they opened at 8, so I was like, hey, Susan, what's happening? And she said, Rudy, Rudy, I got the FBI here. Her voice was shaking. I said, what? Yeah, I got the FBI here. Uh, they want they want to have some files and they want to talk to you. So I got the guy in the line and he says, Mr. Decker, uh, well, we're looking for some files. Uh, where are they? And blah 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 blah. And I told him where they were and I said, Do you need me? He says, No. I said, Wait a minute. Let me come over to Venice right now because I think that this is such a magnitude. This is such a. I need to be there. I'm the owner. I am I'm the only spokesman for the company. So he waited for me, and I jumped in my car, and I raced to Venice. But when Susan told me this, I was actually still watching the news from uh, 9-11, early in the morning on 9-12. I was sitting on the floor. I usually don't sit on the couch, but on the floor. I don't know why I do that, but I like that. And I'm sitting there in my underwear, so I give you the picture. She calls. She tells me this. I kid you not. I I went out of my body. Mm-hmm. I kid you not. I went out of my body and looked from the ceiling down and I see myself sitting. I went out. Wow. I am not religious. I am not. I believe what I have in my hands. I don't believe anything else that I can see or touch or smell. And I cannot describe different to you than this. I was outside my body. I was so shocked. I don't know what happened. I was out. I saw myself sitting there. Whatever time later, I'm back on earth. <laughs> Call it that way, and then I tell her I'll come over. But I, I can't. I can't describe this. It's just unbelievable. Unbelievable. So you you, you get down to uh, uh, to the company and and. You, you meet with well, before I came to the company, I had a phone call from the FBI, the spokesman from the FBI, and um, uh, you, you could have seen that and probably you saw that. But he asked me, he said, Mr. Beck, is you on your way to uh, Venice? Probably the FBI guy called him. He says, uh, there's going to be a lot of reporters. There's going to be a lot of people asking you. Right. I would uh, ask you to keep your mouth shut. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I was like, what? Mm-hmm. I said, 
sir, this is such a magnitude. If I say to the public, no comments, they're going to crucify me. Absolutely. They're going to do something. Yeah. I mean, and then I told him, I said, do I have to obey to those questions? And he was flabbergasted with those questions because in America, I found out people are very quickly uh, uh, obedient to uniforms. And in Europe, we're not. <laughs> so... <laughs> So I don't know how it is in San Diego, but, uh, you know, in Florida, people are bending over right away when a uniform asks them something. And yeah. in Europe, we teach, we teach like, uh, why and what for and <laughs> is that good for me? So basically, I told the guy that. I said, uh, that's not good for me. So then he asked me not to talk about specifics, but only, you know, when the media knew something, I could talk about it. So I said, listen, I'm going to talk there. If they're going to ask me something, I'm not going to go hide myself. I'm going to be an open book. I have to protect myself, and I can only be protecting myself to be completely honest and completely open. And that's what I did. Well, thank God you did. And what was it, Amy O'Shea, that uh, was the first reporter on the scene with you uh, who was there in Florida. Uh, and yeah. she obviously contributed to your book as well. Um, but uh, she got the story right, and... You know, regardless of what other people uh, might think, thank God for Amy, huh? Gee, I'll tell you what. Uh, but I noticed later that, uh, you know, President Bush came out uh, when the tourist visas were issued, that he was extremely mad. And within half an hour, I had the INS in my facility picking up the original visas. I mean, INS never works fast, but, you know, if they have to, I guess they do, huh? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, uh, what, um, you know, we always look back and say, if I would have, could have, should have, um, would there have been anything that you would have done differently, said differently? I, I really, uh, in my personal belief, not putting words in your mouth, I don't think you could have. No. People ask me till today. I did a public speaking last week in this area, and um, after I spoke for an hour, they were flabbergasted that they couldn't say anything, so I asked the questions for them. <laughs> and then after a few minutes, they were like asking questions, and they said, Rudy, now, 10 years later, is there anything that you would have said, this I could have seen? I said, no. I said, no. Not one bit. Not one bit that in my body. I wish, because, you know, now I'm infamous, and I wish i known because then I would have reported them, I would have cut them in pieces myself, because that's, you know, if you know that somebody's going to blow up a building, you're going to do something about that, period. Uh, so it destroyed my life. Uh, it destroyed partially my personal life. I'm not a person that says I'm a victim, because that's not my character, but of course I'm a victim. And, of course, you know, right now it's, it's a tough time. I mean, financially I've been not capable to do the same anymore. Um... Yeah, what do I say? I'm not dead, you know, I didn't die, so <laughs> I'm not a victim that way. The, the old saying goes, whatever, if it doesn't kill you, it can only make you stronger. You, uh, yeah. you, you lost your, your, your marriage to Astrid after 20 years, uh, and you were shocked that she really didn't stand by you. Um, can you how, how, did you meet your, how did you meet your wife, Astrid, and, and, and how did you guys fall in love? Tell me a little bit about that background story. And, and, and Remember I talked to you about the taxi? Yeah. I was, uh, I was in the evening taxi chauffeur during the day. I was a sergeant with the electronic connections, and I met her in the taxi. 
um, several times, and um, she was a beautiful Indonesian girl. She still is beautiful, long black hair, you know, small, and I love that. And uh, I tried to get out with her, to go out with her. She didn't want to. Six months it took me to get her out, and her mom said, hey, this is a good guy. He has a good job. You should be falling in love with him. And I pushed hard, and finally she fell for me. But she never fell, fell, fell for me. Um, after 20 years, I noticed she respected me. She loved me in a way that she could be with me. But her love was a guy before me that she never could let go. And I did not realize that until 10 years in the marriage. But then we had three kids, and she kept going. And it was an okay marriage, but it was never from her side love. It was not from my side. She's a good woman, though, um, a little introvert. Um, after 9-11, she could not handle the media. She just could not handle it. Mm -hmm. And every day, I mean, I did thousands of interviews, and they bothered us at home and on the cell phone and on the house phone. She could not. And due to the fact that, you know, it was not a perfect law for her anyway, um, she had so much pressure, she says, Rudy, I'm going to let you go. She was the one that walked away from me. Um, we are still friends. She uh, lives in Naples still. I spoke to her a couple of days ago. I speak to her every two, three months. The, the good thing for me is that she told me a couple of years ago that she regrets that she left me. Mm -hmm. But, you know, my life, moved, my life moved on. But she's a great woman, but she could not handle the pressure. She could not. Plus, let my financial you. imperium. Huh? No, let me ask you this, Rudy. Do you still love her? No. So the love is the love is lost. Yeah, you know, when a woman leaves you like that and uh, you love her, you know, there's a time that you uh, are grieving, and, and you know, I know I, I moved on. I met another woman. Uh, I'm married to Katia, a Cuban lady. Um, I love her. I love her to death. I have a new baby. She's two and a half now. Mm -hmm. I love my family. Um, I, I I move on. I'm not a person. You know, I'm a businessman. So. You know, we businessmen, we don't stand still too long about one thing. you got to move forward. So I'm not going to move backwards ever. So she took that decision. It uh, took me a little while to get over. And then that's it. Go on. Move on. Uh, how were your children affected by this? Were they harassed at school? or? Uh... No, they were never. No. The first couple of days, my appearances in the United States really, really, showed the people that I was just a businessman and therefore I was so happy that I did what my feeling told me to do and that is to be open because, you know, the first day, September 12th, I had a couple of hundred thousand emails on my server that went down because of all those emails and people were threatening and, you know, uh, threatening because they thought I had to do with it. But then I came on the news and everybody, I had emails back again that said, I'm sorry, we understand you're just in business. I said earlier this and this and this, but I'm sorry. So the public turned around, and I, I know that is because I was open. And the same thing happened with them. They didn't go to school September 12th. I kept them out. Mm. Um, and, and the whole week I kept them out because I did not know what to expect, and i got to protect my family. Sure. Um, but they went to school, and the teachers came to them, and they said, of course, your daddy had nothing to do with this. He's just a businessman. So, no, they were always uh, actually 
I don't want to say the word admired by their friends, but like you bet, you know, he did a good job. He didn't do nothing wrong. So no, they had they had no bad time in that matter. The bad times were at home where we were harassed, where we, you know, I mean, we had every day two, three, four reporters on the door. And I've been always open for the media, always. But I said to the media, this is my phone number, this is where you can reach me, and I'll work 24-7, but do not come to my home. And after a couple of months, they, 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 got, the, they got the message, and I never had anybody at home anymore. So, and then one more thing about the media, you can pick and paste it anywhere in your uh, tape anyway. The professional media, like yourself, the radio stations, the newspapers, they were all courteous, professional. Mm-hmm. And they understood right away I was a business, just doing my business. Mm-hmm. But then we got people like Metcal Productions, uh, you know, stuff like that. They are just looking up for trouble. Yeah, those are the people making the trouble. But, you know, then I come back to the 80-20 rule. When 80% is good and 20% is bad, you're doing a good job. You know, something we didn't talk about um, uh, earlier in the interview was, uh, you know, the fact that uh, you've had a lot of near-death experiences uh, in flight, uh, particularly, uh, well, I think one was windsurfing, and then you had uh, uh, one when you were uh, flying with... uh, uh, with your friend, uh, and so you know, saw St. Elmo's fire, and uh, and then you had the helicopter crash, and you kind of alluded that uh, the helicopter was um, tampered with, and it might have been an attempt on your life. Can you can you speak about that? Sure, sure. After 9/11, I thought to survive in Hoffman Aviation financially. I did not. Then I knew I was going so negative on money, and I would lose Huffman Aviation. Then we had the incident with the helicopter. I'll come back to the incident on the helicopter. Then I wanted to start an aviation company in Naples, Florida. I never spoke about the helicopter crash in the way it happened, because I was trying to set up a new aviation company with chartering airplanes. So I never spoke really what happened in the helicopter. But what really happened is this. When I went down in the helicopter and almost did not survive, I came out of the water and, and you know, I, I crawled uh, on another helicopter, hanging on a helicopter. He dumped me on the land, and I jumped on the grass and then in the pool. We know that story, and the people who hear about this, they can read it all about the book. But when the FAA called me after the helicopter was taken out of the water, they said, Rudy, you had no fuel. Therefore, we're going to find punishment in taking your private, uh, taking your helicopter license. And I said, but I checked the fuel. The fuel was enough to go to Venice, plenty. I checked it on the indicator, and I checked it in the tank. Really, the fuel was out of the tank. There was no fuel. Sorry, I don't believe your story. We're going to send you a letter and get your license. Two, three weeks later, I talked to um, uh, the helicopter manufacturer, in Tallahassee, Florida. And I tell him the story. He said, man, they're going to jank my license, and uh, I love helicopters, blah, blah, blah. He says, why? I said, well, they took the helicopter out, and they did not examine the helicopter because they saw that the tank was empty. There was no reason for them to examine the helicopter. He says, what did you just say? Mm. I said, yeah, they told me the tank is empty. 
He says, really, that's not possible. If a helicopter or a car or a motorcycle or a plane runs out of fuel, there's always unusable fuel. That is for a tank to keep the dirt collected in the bottom of the tank so it won't go into the, in the fuel pump. Mm-hmm. He says, in this helicopter, there's one point one three-quarter gallon uh, of unusable fuel that should be in the tank. Was there water in the tank? I said, no, the FAO told me there was no water in the tank. It was completely empty. I said, really, that's your saver because there's, there must be tempered with because it's not possible. So I called the FAA and I told the FAA their story. And, you know, no, they didn't like that. Uh, they didn't like that because they thought they could have me pulling my license. Mm-hmm. But they admitted and they said, yeah, that is not possible. You're right. So they released the helicopter to me. They did not touch my license. When the helicopter came back from the FAA, where they said to me they didn't touch the helicopter, I checked immediately the tank and the fuel lines. I found one safety wire cut, and I found the nut loose. Wow. Now, I called, I, called the FBI, I called the FAA back, and I said, listen, you said to me you did not touch the helicopter. I want to know from you, did you cut a safety wire? Did you loosen a nut? He says, no, why? Okay, thank you. This was loose, this was cut. You could have seen that already, so you know that there was something else. Yeah. Now, there's no, business, there's no business card there that said who did this. But I am not flying with a helicopter with a safety wire from the nut is cut loose. You understand what I'm saying? Exactly, exactly. 100% for sure that somebody was doing something to me. Really, you are uh, beyond a fighter. I mean, if if I, if you were an actual fighter, I don't know if I would put. Uh, I, w- I don't know if if I was Mike Tyson, I would go in the ring with you. <laughs> I'm getting older. Because <laughs> I, I think Rudy would 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 win win because you just have a resilience that. Uh, is uh, unmatched. You know, I, I know how you uh, uh, felt about coming to America uh, when you came. How do you feel about America and Americans now that uh, all of this is, is behind you after 10 years, but in many ways will be with you for the rest of your life? You're asking my personal or are you asking my feelings about America? Well, you blew it because now I want both. <laughs> I want yeah, both. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, first of all, I have to be—I always have to be, be careful. I'm a guest in this country, and I try to refrain from politics because you know I can't vote. Um, I am not an American. I stay Dutch citizen uh, for a reason. Um, but I—I have—I have two answers here. America. American people. I think they are great. I think it's a great country with the right people in Washington. I think that Americans are open people, uh, generous people. Um, I found this a very beautiful country with opportunities. Yet, this is before 9-11. After 9-11, I see many things. I see a whistleblower from the FBI that is kicked out by her own department because she was a whistleblower. I don't think that's right. Yet, I see 
Congress taking advice from many people that know in aviation what to do, what they say. They only talk. They only talk. They only talk. I see many departments pointing fingers to departments. And in the meantime, the Americans are paying for that. I believe, really believe, that America was better off before 9-11. America right now is going, in my opinion, beyond protection. I think that, yes, this is a very sensitive um, issue, Mm -hmm. terrorists. But you know they're 2,000 years around or even longer. I believe that the attention that we get here in America is unnecessary. Why does if America needs to be number one in all the wars in in the Middle East? I I really think that you can never win terrorism. Mm-hmm. You need to live with it. You need to protect yourself for it. But don't draw attention. And I believe we are drawing attention here. Um, I'm not in politics, so when I say something, it's my opinion, nobody else's opinion. Um, I always tell people, I compare this with prostitutes. Prostitutes in most states in the United States are forbidden, yet we have them here as long as we have people. We learn to live with that. I think that uh, Israel um, is one of the safest airports in the world. Why? Because they profile. So why are we against profiling? Mm. So because of my affiliation with 9-11, I look at things a little different than most people. I was in San Diego two, three weeks ago. I uh, flew back. um, I don't know what airline anymore. But anyway, there's a new scanner there in San Diego, and I refuse to go through the scanner. I am for safety but I'm not for a scanner that they can see me there and see how big I am and how small I am, and I just don't believe in that. Mm-hmm. Next time the government makes a rule that I have to bend over and I need to shove a stick in there two feet long. I mean, I just think we go too far. Mm-hmm. So I told the gentleman, I said, listen, I am not interested to go in the scanner. You can do whatever you want with me to find out that I'm safe. And the guy respected me. Not at all. Not at all what I see in the newspapers that people get treated bad. No, if you don't want to go through that machine, they'll respect you. But yet they have to touch you in places that you don't want to be touched by a man, only by females. (laughs) So I am opinionated. I am opinionated. Um, I'm telling you another thing. I'm a a Dutch citizen. I am married with a United States uh, citizen. I filed five years ago for my green card. Yet, I don't have it yet. Mm. Every time when I check, I lost my file. I can't find it. Two years ago, I had an interview. One day before, they called it off. Now I went to the interview last July. They didn't need to talk to my wife because they said, no, you got a legit marriage. That was four years after I married her. They are trying to find anything not to get me a green card. Why? Why? I found a letter in the Internet from the FBI, from an FBI agent to another FBI agent, that they're trying since 2004 to put something on me so 
because the terrorists should never have been in my flight school. How do you like that one? Wow. Now, if you trans, if you transmit me to this or not, I don't care. It's up to you. Everything I say, you can transmit. I usually don't talk about this because, you know, it is against me. But why the heck? Why the heck? It's the same thing as the small business uh, loans that everybody could get because 9-11 destroyed the business, the tourists. Uh, uh, agencies had less business, the cab drivers had less business, they filed for a loan and they did get it. Mm -hmm. I filed for a loan, I filed for a loan with Huffman Aviation, I did not get it. And mm -hmm. God damn, I was the one who trained them. I am the one with the most damage. So, why? Now, I know now that probably in January I won't be here in this country anymore. You know, it comes to the point now, huh? Why is that? Because they're not giving me my green card. They are finding stuff. They're trying to find stuff that I did that is not kosher. I can't find a tax return, for example, in 2004. They say, well, you should have your tax return. I have a letter here from the INS that is so ridiculous. I'll give you a small small story. And, I, again, you probably should have noted your, your opinion. In, let me think, 2008, my mom gets sick in Spain. She's in a hospital. My brother calls me. We don't know if mom is going to make it. I think it was nine. Sorry, it was 2009. Okay. Marshall, get me a letter from the hospital that she's uh, mortal ill, and with that letter I probably can get a permit right because I didn't have travel permits because I applied for a green card. Mm -hmm. I went to Tampa to show them the letter, and they said, no, you got to file that with uh, uh, um, uh, Minnesota or whatever. Up north. I sent it up north, paid $340. I got it back six weeks later. My mom's already better. But six weeks later, I got it back. You filed it at the wrong department. You got to go to Tampa. I went a year and a half to Tampa, back and forth, back and forth, where they told me I lost, they lost my file, excuses, excuses, and I have everything on paper. Everything I say I have on paper. May 8, 2009, I went there again, or 2010. At least a year later, okay? okay. Yeah, I think it was 8 to 9. A year later, I went there again, and that day, they finally gave me a travel document to travel. I did not say I was going to travel only to Spain. It was a travel document for a year. Okay. So here I am. It took 24 visits, a year and a couple of months to get this document. Now I get two months ago from the immigration a letter. Mr. Deckers, you came to our office May 8, 2009, and you claimed that your mom was sick. That day we gave you a permit to travel. And what did you do? Two weeks later, you went to Cuba, because my wife is from Cuba. Now, this was not even a question. It was a character demolishing thing on paper. You follow what I'm saying? Character assassination. I did not. I, yeah, yeah. I did get that permit on May 8th, but uh, the, 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 the man forgot to put on there that it lobbied more than a year and three months for it. Wow. So somebody is trying to make a file on me that I should go. Well, I'll go. If I don't have a permit to stay here, I'll go. I'm not married with the United States. But it makes me mad. Of course. Because I didn't do nothing. They tried to find scapegoats. 
Sure. Now, so I have to file this letter before the end of the month, and I'll do. Oh, and I'll put it in there. <laughs> I'm, sure you I'm not scared for those people. Oh yeah, I'm not scared for those people. I'm not scared for those bureaucrats that are doing it that way. What are you but doing? Anyway, nobody has nobody has this story, so you haven't. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. Thank you for that. What are you doing for business now? What are you, what, what uh, are you able to fly? No, I didn't fly for years anymore because I can't afford it. Uh, I did a pool business. After aviation, I tried to do other aviation, but the FAA was pestering me, and I could not do that anymore. Uh, then I went into uh, uh, starting a cartridge ink fill stores. I wanted to set up a chain franchise of uh, refilling uh, ink cartridges. But then when I started it, I already started it, put in $100,000. I found out that Walgreens were starting it a couple of months after when I started. So I didn't see that happening anymore. Then I started selling pools, building pools in this area. And I, I was successful for three years with it. I made a quarter million dollars a year. That was successful for me now. But then the economy hit like a wall, and uh, nobody buys pools anymore. And up till now here, nothing is happening. You know in California what shape it is? Well, it's worse here. So right now I'm working on my book. I'm uh, promoting my book. I do some speaking here and there. I make some money with that. Um, I'm, I'm pre-selling. Uh, no, not pre-selling, but in the speaking arrangement, I tell the people about the book. Mm -hmm. On my webpage, I'm, I'm, I'm working more on my webpage to tell them that it's available August 15 in all the big bookstores and all the websites. I understand from my publisher that there is a lot of interest in the book, uh, so that's fantastic. But uh, that's my only hope, you know, because right now uh, there is no income, period. Mm -hmm. Well, let, let's, talk about know, let's talk about something good that has come into your life, and that is you are now married to Katia. Uh, who's yeah. from Cuba. How did you guys meet and fall in love? Uh, well, we've, we met on the new cyber um, uh, romance uh, place, Internet. Is that right? Yeah. Well, I, um, I'm not, I don't drink, you know. I don't go to bars. And, yeah. You know, it's always hard as a man if you see a lady that you like and you want to advance on her. Nine out of ten times they're married or they have a boyfriend or they have something. They don't hang a plate on their shoulder. I have a boyfriend, don't bother me. So I don't like that. But <laughs> but on the Internet, they put themselves available like, hey, I'm looking for the same thing. What are you looking for? So that's how I um, it was uh, it was on a famous website. And um, I went in there and had some chats here and there. And then I met her. She was in Miami. And uh, we talked the whole night, and then the next day the whole night, and I said, hey, uh, can I meet you? And then she let me wait three hours for the first time and told her, if you do that again, I'll never see you anymore. So the next time she did it again. <laughs> and then I wanted to, yeah, really, Cubans. And then uh, I drove I drove away from the parking place where I was meeting her, and then she came, and I almost missed her. But anyway, she, um, she's headstrong. You know, Cuban, uh, beautiful young woman, she's 40, and I'm already, you know, an old fart, 55. <laughs> um, you know, but I made a new baby. I'm still happy, you know, still strong. <laughs> <laughs> still in the game. <laughs> still in the game, still in the game. Gotta take it as long as it's there, you know? Well, really, I you know in Holland we say. Huh? Go ahead, you said in Holland what? Yeah, and how we say I used to hit the windows in with it, now I can clean the windows with it. 
Well, Rudy, I I wish you uh, the absolute best success with this book. It's a phenomenal read. It's a phenomenal life story, life journey. It is a uh, a book on uh, that will help people in business, help people in life. It has many many uh, uh, wonderful facets about it, and so I I think it will do well for you. And I I think America has healed, uh, still in the process of healing, and I think you'll get a lot of love uh, and support. Uh, from this book. So uh, with that being said, uh, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule today and, and, and uh, uh, chatting with me. Thank you for having me and uh, you're welcome. I'm always available. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.